been having a blast just traveling through the Easter season uh, over the last few weeks. And uh, we're going to continue in that, uh, even though Easter Sunday has come and gone, we're going to continue in that this morning. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been tracking through the journey that Jesus took um, as he approached uh, the cross, as he approached uh, dying for us, and then as we celebrated last weekend, resurrecting from the dead. Uh, We talked about on Palm Sunday the reality that Jesus, uh, he came into Jerusalem uh, not carrying a sword to overthrow the Roman government, but he was preparing to get onto a cross and to overthrow sin and death. We talked about how as Jesus approached uh, Good Friday, on Good Friday we looked uh, at the life of Jesus and uh, we celebrated the incredible amount of humility that it would have taken uh, for Jesus, who is fully God, to have become a human being. That putting on frail human flesh and uh, being born uh, as a baby and growing up and living a life in a vulnerable body, how incredible the amount of humility must have been for the God of the universe to become confined uh, to a human body. And we looked at the the reason that he did that for us, uh, because he wanted to come and to redeem us from our sins. And so we celebrated that on Good Friday. And then we walked into Easter Sunday, and last weekend, we celebrated the incredible reality that Jesus did not stay dead after Good Friday, but that he resurrected from the dead. And if that is true, that that should change everything about our lives, that that is not like, you know, kind of water cooler, casual conversation that you have with people, you know, huh, Jesus raised from the dead, you know, that is some shouting ground material, amen? And so we celebrated that together, and it was an awesome, awesome thing. And if you've been tracking with us throughout that journey, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And if you've missed any of that, man, go check it out on our podcast uh, on the website because it's been a great journey that we've had together. And throughout the Easter season, it's easy for us to finish up Easter on Easter Sunday, celebrate the resurrection, go find some eggs with some melted chocolate in them, and then call it a a, a day, an Easter uh, well celebrated. But this weekend, we're actually going to take it one step further, and we're going to journey into uh, the sandals of the disciples, and we're going to see what it must have felt like for them, the followers of Jesus, uh, in the aftermath of the resurrection. And we're going to have a great time as we do it. See, the reality is, as we kind of look into the lives of the disciples, they encountered maybe one of the most incredible emotional roller coasters that a human being has ever experienced on planet Earth in the week leading up to Jesus' uh, death as well as uh, in the wake of the resurrection. Uh, See, for us, we have the gift and the benefit of being able to look back on 2,000 years of church history. We have the opportunity for us uh, to, to see how everything unfolds, and, and we, we kind of have that settling of time behind us that we can look at it and see the, the story in its full picture. But for the disciples, uh, just after the resurrection, they didn't have all of that experience to lean on like we do. See, for those disciples, just a week prior to the resurrection, they were marching into Jerusalem under the impression that Jesus was, in fact, going to overthrow the Roman government who had been oppressing the nation of Israel all this time. 
Uh, in fact, as you kind of see their uh, interactions, you see them kind of even squabbling over who is going to be at kind of Jesus' right and at Jesus' left. Renault mentioned it last week that they even, uh, they even had gotten their mother involved in the process, which shows you kind of the youth and the immaturity uh, that was uh, going on in the lives of the disciples. As they were walking into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and and all of the people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, thinking that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue the people of Israel. The disciples were under the impression that they were going to rule with Jesus. And for them, they were like, yeah, walking in. Yeah, I'm with him. I'm with him. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. I'm going to be in charge of this whole thing in just a few days. Of course, along with Jesus. But, uh, you know, watch out as we come in. And we see how that that. Uh, uh, progression of events unfolds in those few days between Sunday and Friday, and things start to get really grim, and Jesus starts to get really somber, and he starts to tell them stories about how he's going to, uh, that, that, that he's going to die and then resurrect, and, he, and they, they're not really sure how to understand that. They're, they're not sure how to wrap their minds around it. They're thinking, perhaps he's telling another one of his parables again, and they really just didn't get it. But as Jesus was arrested, as Jesus was uh, tried as he was beaten and mocked, as he was punched and his beard was ripped out, as he was whipped and given a robe, as he was given a crown, not of gold but of thorns, the disciples started to realize that something had gone terribly wrong. So they go from elation to absolute despair in the matter of days. And after the crucifixion, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, I, I can imagine that there would have been nothing but despair in the hearts of the disciples. Perhaps guilt because the disciples, the people who should have had the, the, the back of Jesus, they should have been protecting Jesus, they should have been walking with Jesus and caring for the well-being of Jesus. Instead of standing up for Jesus, they fled. Peter even denied that he even knew Jesus. And so after the death of Jesus, no doubt, everything is unraveled. They're carrying guilt. They're afraid. But then Sunday morning happens. And as predicted, Jesus does actually rise from the dead, which, by the way, is a big deal, okay? Okay? Jesus rises from the dead, and some ladies, Mary and, 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 and a couple of ladies, they go into the tomb, and they, they don't find Jesus' body. Instead, they find two angels who say, uh, he's not here. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. He is alive. And in their excitement, they run back to tell the others, to tell the 12 disciples, well, the 11, because Judas is at this point, Okay. We're not friends with the betrayer at this point, okay? So he goes, she goes and tells the 11, but they're not sure what to believe. So Peter and John run to the tomb, and of course, uh, the author of the book of John, John, is one of those, and he doesn't name himself, but we know that it's him, and he says that the disciple that Jesus loved got to the tomb first. He goes so far as pointing out that he was a faster runner than Peter. I love that. So the disciple Jesus loves, John and, and Peter, they run to the tomb, and they find that it's just as the women had said that, that, that Jesus was not there, but they didn't find his body. 
So they weren't sure what exactly to make of the report of the resurrection. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they thought perhaps that the women were telling an idle tale. And though Jesus had died on the cross and predicted that he would resurrect on the third day, they still weren't able to fully believe. They still weren't able to fully put their faith in Jesus. They weren't able to wrap their mind around all of the events that had transpired in the last week of their lives. This is the emotional roller coaster of their lives. In the aftermath of the resurrection, the disciples probably felt everything from confusion to fear to a little bit of hope, to despair, and everything in between. And that's where we pick up on the story this morning. Why don't we grab our Bibles and we're going to go into Luke chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke chapter 24. We're going to be on page 980 of the Mosaic Bibles this morning. If you brought your own, just turn, turn to Luke 24. We're going to start in verse 13 together. The Gospel of Luke accounts in verse 13, that very day, this is the same day of the resurrection, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, not any one of the 11, but two of Jesus' followers, they were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're on their way to this village. They're talking together about all of the events that had unfolded and taken place. I'm sure they weren't really super worried about who was going to win Survivor that season. They weren't wondering uh, who was going to get a nice deal on Shark Tank. There was really only one thing going on at that point in time, and it was the events that surrounded the death and possible resurrection of Jesus at that time. And someone who they don't recognize, potentially a stranger, joins their conversation, and Jesus is is the person, but their eyes are kept from seeing who he is. Supernaturally, Jesus hides himself from them. Verse 17, and he said to them, this is Jesus, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. See, they were not convinced that Jesus was alive. They were talking about the events that had unfolded, and they were still very sad. They were still saddened by the death of Jesus. That is the reason for their despair. And verse 18, then one of them said, Uh, named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, really, this was the main event. This was the major thing. Many, many people in Jerusalem believed Jesus to be the Messiah. Many people expected him to save the nation of Israel from the hand of Rome and from the grip of Rome. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross... This was an event that was very public, that everyone would have seen, and that everyone would have known about, that everyone would have been talking about. This would have been the absolute talk of the city. 
So they say, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem? In verse 19, he doesn't lie to them. I love it because he's Jesus and he's perfect. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? He just, tell me more, right? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. But we don't know if we still have hope. See, the guy that we put our hope in, the guy that we followed, the guy that we trusted in, not only us, but his 11 disciples, all of the people who followed him throughout his ministry, everyone who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We had hoped. But because he is dead, we no longer have hope. But then there's a little glimmer of hope in what they share. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. See, they, they do remember that Jesus did predict that he would die and on the third day rise again. So there's this hope against hope. Could it really possibly be true? Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they even had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, John and Peter, and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. There's this hope against hope, and yet... Where's Jesus? If he's alive, where is he? Where's the body? We don't know. There's hope against hope. Verse 25, and he said to them, this is Jesus, oh, I love it. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All of the predictions, all of the prophecies about his life and death and resurrection. Verse 26, he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How incredible would that be to be these two guys on the way to Emmaus. They run into Jesus. They don't know it's him. And he preaches to them a message that proves from the scriptures exactly who he is and why he came and what he did. See, you guys are stuck with me this morning. And they got to hear from Jesus, right? I mean, Renault's good, but I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about here, right? How incredible of a sermon must that have been to hear? And as we track through the rest of this story, we find that they invite Jesus to remain with them as they enter into the village of Emmaus. And they have food together. And at that point, uh, Jesus uh, allows them to see who he is. He, he lets their eyes be open to know that it is Jesus. And of course, they're like, we knew it, right? 
And then he vanishes away. And in that moment, the two disciples say to themselves, were our hearts not burning within us as he shared with us who he was from the scriptures? I mean, they felt the hair standing up on their arms when they began to put together the realities of who Jesus was and what he did and what he accomplished and the fact that it was actually all predicted. It was all planned. None of it happened by mistake. And then one final verification, he opens their eyes and they know it's him. How incredible would that moment have been? Now, we don't know exactly what words and what scriptures Jesus used to preach that sermon to those two men. We don't know exactly what verses from the law, from Moses, what verses from the prophets Jesus used to demonstrate who he was. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of my best guess at some of the verses that Jesus may have used to, to proclaim who he was from Genesis and the Psalms and the prophets. You see, for Jewish people, these Old Testament scriptures would have been incredibly familiar to them. Renault shares it this way, you know, in our culture, when we hear, I'll be back, what do we think? The Terminator, right? We think of the governor of California, God help that state, right? When we're here and, and, and you hear, you had me at hello, what movie is that from? You're like, can I admit that in church? Jerry Maguire, right? In our cultural context, movie quotes, we get them, we understand them, we know Uh, We know what those movies are. We know what what those quotes are about. And for a Jewish person, they would have understood and been familiar with the passages of Scripture, with the words of the Scriptures, but they might not necessarily have been able to know and understand fully and been able to put it together exactly what those things meant. And what Jesus does for these two men is he helps them understand. Do you remember this? And do you remember that? And do you remember this? And do you remember that? It was all about me. And in that moment, their hearts, is, their, their hearts were burning within them because they realized it's all true. Genesis, first book of the Old Testament. Genesis promises that one born of a woman, Jesus, check, born of a woman, will crush the head of Satan and tells us that he must be from the line of Abraham and a descendant of Judah. We know that those things are true. The prophet Micah tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah tells us that he will be born of a virgin. Now that narrows it down a bit. Now if you're here and you're a bit younger and you haven't had that birds and bees conversation with your parents, uh, it's time, parents, okay? If they're not in kids' ministry, they're with you, and you haven't had the birds and the bees conversation, it's time. In fact, it should be multiple conversations, but now I'm wearing my youth pastor hat. Let me put, put my teaching pastor hat back on. Born of a virgin narrows it down, does it not? How many people do you know who are born of a virgin? Right, okay. So Isaiah tells us he must be born of a virgin and that he would make the blind see and the deaf hear, right? Right? So not only does this virgin-born man have to be born of a virgin, but he also has to have miraculous powers to cure blind people and deaf people. Well, that's a big deal and really hard to fake, okay? It's like one of his miracles is a boy, uh, a boy that was born blind. 
real tough to, to you know, orchestrate that, you know. That's, that's a big one. Zechariah speaks about the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. Sound familiar? We learned about that on Palm Sunday. He also prophesies that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know what the price that Judas was paid for his betrayal? 30 pieces of silver. This was written hundreds of years before the life of Jesus. Isaiah 52 and 53 describe the life and death of Jesus in detail, that the Messiah would be rejected by men, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, speaking of the wrath of God, and that he would be numbered with the transgressors. You know that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And then he would bear the sin of many. David, who lived a thousand years before Jesus was born, before the Persians had invented crucifixion and before the Romans perfected it, David prophesies that the Messiah would be sneered and mocked and that he would be pierced through the hands and through the feet. This is before crucifixion even exists. Not only did he uh, prophesy that his hands and his feet would be pierced, but also that none of his bones would be broken. It was a common practice in crucifixion that if they needed to expedite the death of one of the criminals being crucified, that they would simply break the legs of the criminal being crucified and that would cause them to suffocate to death because they were no longer able to push up on the nails on their feet and they could no longer breathe. Can you imagine how excruciating it would be to be on a cross? where you have nails through your hands and nails through your feet. And the only way that you could breathe is by pushing up on the nails in order to take a breath. See, we know that Jesus did not only die a physical death at the hand of the Romans, but we also know that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquity. See, Jesus didn't die just a physical death, but he bore the very wrath of God for human sin. And his death went very quickly. As you can imagine, when you are being crucified and the wrath of God is being poured out on you, it doesn't make anything very easy. So David prophesies that none of his bones would be broken. Toward the end of the crucifixion account, we learn that it was getting so close to the festival of Passover, they wanted to ensure that Jesus and the two criminals were dead before Passover began. So a Roman centurion gave the order that the legs would be broken. They broke the legs of the two criminals, but when they checked Jesus, Jesus had already died. He had already said it is finished and he had already breathed his last. So it became unnecessary for them to break his legs, as David prophesied 1,000 years before. So instead of breaking the legs of Jesus, they pierced him with a spear to check to see if his heart had stopped beating. And we know that that blood and water flowed, and that's why 
they knew that he was dead. I wonder what that sermon might have been like. But if you're feeling any way the way that I'm feeling when I hear those scriptures that were written hundreds and even a thousand years before the life and death of Jesus, to know that in such great and painstaking detail, Jesus' life and his death was planned. It's beautiful. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, would later write in the book of Revelation that Jesus was the lamb who was slain. Remember, we just sang about that. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. John says in Revelation that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus' life and death and resurrection so that we could be forgiven for the sin that we committed against God was not plan B. It was plan A. And what Jesus does for these two young men on the road to Emmaus and what we get to look in on is that he demonstrates to us from the scriptures that he is exactly who he says he is and that he is worthy of our lives and worthy of our worship and worthy of the shouting grounds. Amen? It gets better. He doesn't even stop there. Hold your applause till later. He goes so far as to appear to the other disciples. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. You'll find John chapter 20 on page 1005 of the Mosaic Bibles. John chapter 20. So not only has Jesus, through the scriptures, preached and proven that he is exactly who he says he is. He appears to his disciples so that they may be eyewitnesses. Starting in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, so here's the scene, right? They're in a house. They're locked up. They're holed up in a house because they're afraid of the Jews. They're trembling and in fear. These are not bold, courageous men, okay? Why were they in fear of the Jews? Well, the body had gone missing. Who, does, who do you think anyone would believe would have taken the body? The disciples. But it wasn't them. They were confused. They were fearful. They had no idea what to believe. And they're in a locked room which does not stop Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them. As Renault would say, right? Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. Man, what an encouraging moment for the disciples. They're afraid. They're unsure. They're doubting. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to believe. They have hope against hope but they're afraid. And Jesus appears to them and says, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That is the understatement of the millennium, right? You know, they go from, they're pumped on Palm Sunday, and they're absolutely devastated on Good Friday, and they're pumped again, right? This is the emotional roller coaster that they're going on. And then Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. You're going to be my witnesses. Jesus, in that moment, talks to a bunch of cowardly men, and he invites them not only to be recipients of the good news, but also participants to share the good news and to declare the good news to the rest of the world. And Jesus made those men his witnesses of the resurrection. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this was an incredible moment. And these disciples now have experienced the scriptures being brought to them through the encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, showing and demonstrating that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. So Jesus has opened the scriptures and proven who he was and who he is. And then he has revealed himself to his disciples so that they can be his eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And then he sends them on mission in that moment. Can you imagine what a difference that would make in their lives? Can you imagine how they might have gone from terrified to bold? And unfortunately, these disciples, now we don't count Judas anymore. He's not on our team. So there's only 11 of them. But when Jesus shows up, there's only 10. Because Thomas was not with them at the time. Take a look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Apparently Thomas picked a horrific time to go on a Chick-fil-A run. You know what I'm saying? He's like, I'm, I'm hankering for a spicy chicken, y'all, and some waffle fries. Uh, does anybody want some nugs? So he goes out, he goes to Chick-fil-A, he picks up some Chick-fil-A, Jesus shows up while he's gone. Worst day ever. Now, remember, this happened on Sunday. And ever since this has happened, Chick-fil-A has been closed on Sunday. <laughs> so, so now you know. Like, now you understand. Like, you, you leave church, and you're like, I need me some sanctified chicken, right? Some Christian chicken. Where can I get some Christian chicken? Oh, I know. Chicken filet. So you're driving to Chick-fil-A. You drive to Chick-fil-A, and you're like, there is an empty parking lot. Why? It's because Thomas, he went to Chick-fil-A at a bad time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, man. But see, now you know why you could be mad, right? Now, there's an empty parking lot because there's an empty tomb. And true, Kathy loves Jesus, and he said, we're going to close on Sunday. <laughs> That's why. All right. Now you, know the, now you know the rest of the story. All right. Okay. The real story. Oh, man. So he wasn't with them. But the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, <laughs> I love that, Jesus just lets him straight up stew on that for eight days. Just crockpotting Thomas on low, <laughs> real low and slow. <laughs> eight days later, so, so funny. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And this time Thomas was with him. He's like, y'all get your own Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Thomas was with him that time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, hey man, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, Thomas has gotten a really, really bad rap for all of this. I love this interaction that Jesus has with Thomas because Jesus doesn't actually berate Thomas. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't give Thomas a nickname like Doubting Thomas. Christians did that later, right? And Christians can be so sweet. <laughs> Call him Doubting Thomas. I would have believed if I'd been there. No, you wouldn't. Stop it. He says, Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. See, I got I to gotta, I gotta be honest with you. So I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for a while. I, I, I get paid to do this. And there's a lot of days, you guys, I mean, I mean, seriously. And I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, boy, I really hope this stuff is all true. You guys ever feel that way? I mean, anybody else, like, am I the only one? Like, have you ever thought and considered, like, hey, what if this whole thing about Jesus, his life and his death and his, his resurrection, what if it's not true? I think about that. Because for me, because I do believe that it is true, I truly have oriented my life around that belief. I spent a lot of time here at this church when I could be sleeping in on Sunday, right? My career path, personally, that for me, my career path has been shifted and shaped by my belief in Jesus. I mean, certainly I could find a way to make more money somewhere, right? I could certainly find a way to spend my time somewhere else. I could certainly figure out a way to spend my energy and my effort Somewhere else, I could, I could give of my finances to somewhere else. If this stuff were not true, the life that I live doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if you are here and you believe in Jesus and you have, you have given your life to him, you have put your trust and faith and hope in him for salvation, my hope for you is that you would orient your life around him as well. That if, if a man was professionally executed 2,000 years ago after saying he was God, predicting he would be killed, and then resurrecting from the dead, and then that man told you that if you believed in him, you could have eternal life, perhaps that's something worth listening to, right? But if it's not true, 
How sad would that be? And C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was either one of three things. He was either a liar, he was either a lunatic, or he was Lord. And I don't know a whole lot of liars and lunatics that know how to predict their death, die on the cross, professionally executed by the Roman government, and figure out a way to raise themselves from the dead two days, you know, on the third day, two days later. I don't know a lot of people that can do that. So if Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, the only thing that can be true is that he is, in fact, Lord. And that was Thomas's conclusion when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, my Lord, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You know, what's interesting is we kind of give Thomas a lot of flack and we call him Doubting Thomas and all of that kind of thing. But did you know that Thomas was actually the first disciple to recognize that not only was Jesus Lord, but that he was God? See, Jesus had claimed deity. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. That was a claim of deity. But none of his disciples had acknowledged that. They had acknowledged that he was the Messiah. Remember when uh, you know, uh, by the Holy Spirit, Peter said, uh, you know, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. But up until this point, no one had recognized that not only was Jesus Lord, but that he was God. And I love that Jesus is so gracious to us in the midst of our struggles and in the midst of our fears and in the midst of our doubts. Because the disciple who doubted him most, Jesus gave the privilege for us to see that that disciple was the first one to actually put two and two together and to figure out that if Jesus was Messiah, if he was Lord and he could raise himself from the dead, that he was God. See, if you're here and you're kind of one of those like really, really um, concrete thinkers you're a bit of a skeptic, you're a processor, you're a little bit on the doubting side, I want you to know that you're actually in very good company. And that Jesus is patient with us, that Jesus will reveal himself to us. And in fact, he's gone to great lengths by revealing himself through the scriptures, by revealing himself to his followers who became his eye witnesses. And when we finally figure it out, when we put it together, when we see who Jesus is and we recognize who he is, that he doesn't say, well, took you long enough, right? But he welcomes us in. I love that Jesus doesn't shun Thomas, but he tells his disciples why he revealed himself to them the way that he did. After Thomas's proclamation of the deity of Jesus, when he says, my Lord and my God, Jesus's response is, have you believed because you have seen me? Jesus said, I wanted you to see me 
so that it was undeniable that you would believe, that you would be my eyewitnesses. He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. You know, that's you and me, right? But Jesus is gracious enough to demonstrate who he is through the scriptures and by having eyewitnesses who saw him resurrect from the dead so that as we look back on his life and on the account of his life and as we look back on the testimony, the gospels, the testimony of the eyewitness accounts, that we would find those eyewitness accounts to be credible. Because these people, these followers, these disciples, the 12 minus Judas equals 11. 10 of 11, including John, who wrote this account of the gospel, were killed for their faith. But they weren't killed as martyrs just because they believed and they hoped. They were killed for their faith, declaring what they knew to be true because they had seen Jesus resurrect from the dead. These men became Jesus' eyewitnesses. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that a lot of people will die for what they believe to be true. And we see that all the time, right? We see that, people dying for their country. We see people dying for religions that they do believe to be true, right? He says, people die for what they believe, but no one dies for something that they know to be a lie, And the 10 of 11 eyewitnesses who died, now John, John wrote the book of Revelation, the John that we're reading his gospel, John did not die, uh, he died of natural causes, he did not die from martyrdom. However, before he died, he was boiled alive, his eyes were gouged out, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos before he wrote the book of Revelation. I think he paid his dues, okay? But the other 10 men, they died as martyrs, not proclaiming something they just believed, but proclaiming something that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt was true because they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and they had seen the truth of the scriptures unfold before them. C.S. Lewis rightly asserts, no one dies for a lie they are telling. One time I was uh, in big trouble, I was always in big trouble, and I was going to get a spanking, and I hid the paddle. (laughs) Brilliant, right? The problem is, the person who was going to spank me, my family was living in their house, my father died when I was very, very young, and so we were living with another family, and the man of that house was my disciplinarian, and he was big, okay? He was also very handy. And because they had moved us into their house, they were actually building an addition on their house so that they could fit us. Which, by the way, if that doesn't preach the gospel, I don't know what does, right? This is an amazing Christian family that brought us in. 
So I'm, I'm in trouble. I've hidden the paddle. And Mike decides, that's okay. I've got plenty of extra lumber. I'll just fashion a new one, right? So I hear the saw outside. <laughs> Fashioning a new paddle before me. And when Mike returned to spank me, the paddle was bigger <laughs> and scarier. Do you think I confessed to my sin? Of course I did. I confessed to the lie. And the reason I confessed to the lie is because the truth wasn't worth the punishment. Or hiding the truth wasn't worth the punishment. Anyway, you get it. See, for these 10 disciples, and for the 11 who were persecuted, for those who were martyred, if they had been telling a lie about being eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, certainly, certainly, at least one of them would have cracked. But we know that they were killed in horrific ways, speared to death, filleted alive. Peter was crucified, but he did not find himself, did not count himself worthy enough to die in the same fashion that his Lord Jesus had died. So he requested that he be crucified upside down. And you and I, 2,000 years later, have the opportunity to look back at their eyewitness accounts and to find, even in the midst of our doubt, that those eyewitness accounts are trustworthy. John continues in verse 30 by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And that, my friends, is shouting grounds material. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. My Lord and my God, Jesus Our hair stands up on end as we recognize the truth, the undeniable truth of who you are. That you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures, painstakingly so. And that you were gracious enough to reveal yourself to your followers, that they be trustworthy eyewitnesses of who you are. So that 2,000 years later, we who have not seen may believe and be blessed. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to offer us eternal life in you that you came and you lived a perfect life and, and your death on the cross took the penalty that we deserved for our sin. And that upon your death, the penalty was paid 
that our sin could be forgiven and that upon your resurrection, we may have eternal life. Lord, help us believe. We're grateful for you and we respond to you in worship. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.